Hello, everybody, and welcome to a belated episode 47 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, there's so much stuff that matters that we may not be able to fit it all in, so we've opted instead to avoid the problem altogether, just like an ostrich, and invite along a guest to chat about a fascinating and increasingly important subject instead, golf in China. Don't panic, we'll record a more newsy episode in coming days to do with Ted Bishop and the Ryder Cup and all that sort of stuff, but... Uh, for the moment, we're going to have a chat with journalist and author Dan Washburn. I'll introduce Dan in a moment, but first, my co-host, or co-host as it turns out because of some technical glitches at the moment. He's uh, Internet's most interesting golf blogger, author, commentator, course architect, golf channel regular, Jeff Shackleford-Shack. Welcome. Looking forward to chatting with Dan today and hoping we overcome our technical issues and Clates can join us shortly. Yeah, it's nice to hear your voice again, Rod. How was your uh, round-the-world uh, trip on uh, your yacht? It, <laughs> exactly. If only, my friend, it's oh. been, been flat out. Though I was at the Asia Pacific Amity last week, and it was fantastic. So we'll chat about that when we uh, come to record yeah. our, our news roundup. There's been some complaints, hasn't there, Shaq? The, so the listeners- there have, but uh, I think they'll be they'll be glad to. I've heard Dan uh, talk just recently and talking about his book. His book is really interesting, and as China becomes a focus for golf here the next few weeks, I think uh, people are going to enjoy hearing what he has to say. No doubt. And in fact, it is probably one of the most interesting areas of golf uh, at the moment. You've mentioned the magic word, Dan Washburn, journalist, author, recently released book, Golf, and I've now lost the golf. Dan, what's your book called? (laughs) The Forbidden Forbidden Game. Yeah, it's called The Forbidden Game, Golf and the Chinese Dream. Bidden game golf and the Chinese dream. That is the voice of Dan Washburn. Dan, welcome. We were all a bit flustered this morning. It hasn't been the smoothest intro, but it's fantastic to have you. Really looking forward to getting some insights on golf in China. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with Dan. Um, how did you come to be in China and sort of digging into golf? I mean, it's not the sort of thing one would think you'd wander over to China and see what's going on with golf over there. How did you come to be sort of digging around in the topic? Well, uh, before I uh, rather impulsively moved to China in 2002, I was a a sports writer and columnist at a newspaper in Georgia outside of Atlanta and um, wasn't really a a golf writer, not a golfer either, Um, but I ended up um, somewhat randomly uh, covering some of the, the big international tournaments that were starting to pop up in China around um, 2005. Um, the story actually starts in Hawaii. Um, I was having uh, dinner with my brother who lives out there and also at the table was Jason Sobel um, who then was the uh, golf editor at ESPN.com and we started talking and um, I was a sports writer in China and they were looking to for more content um, about golf in China, and so we just hatched a plan there to, uh, to for me to do some stories. Um, at that point, I didn't really know much about the, the big complicated world that surrounds um, golf in China. My stories were were more standard fare of just what is this, what are these big tournaments doing in this country where almost nobody plays the game. Um, but the, the longer I, I lingered um, and the more I, I got to know the intricacies, it, it actually seemed, and much to my surprise, that looking at the growth of golf in China was actually a, uh, a good window onto modern China itself. Um, golf and its growth in China really touches on a lot of big issues um, that are impacting China now and have for the for the past couple couple decades. Um, so the book is yes, it's a book about golf in China, but I, I think it's it's much more. It's a, it's a book about China that happens to use golf as a as a way into the into the topic. Uh-huh. Now, which I want to explore, but hang on, Clates has just popped up online, so let's see if I can bring him in now. And then I wanted to uh, tease out some of those issues you mentioned. I'm interested in the notion of golf being a sort of a broader metaphor for things culturally in China. Clates, can you hear me? Oh, he's having a terrible time, Clates. No, it doesn't seem to be... Uh... You sure he's not calling in from China? I know we have some tech <laughs> problems usually from there. How does Skype go, Joe? We discussed this, didn't we, just before we came on air? The whole internet in China, you hear all these crazy stories about how it works. You said it wasn't too bad for you, mostly. Well, it can be a challenge, um, 
calls will definitely uh, cut off and certain websites you want to access are not always available or if they are they can be really slow because you have to use a a VPN to kind of get around all of the blocks they have on on the websites you might want to use on a daily basis. Well, I'll let that ring and see if Clades can uh, can pick it up. He's trying to download the app onto his iPhone, so not really his forte, that sort of thing. Dan, you were sort of touching on this notion of golf reflecting a broader uh, sense of sort of where China's at more generally now. Can you maybe tease that out for us a little bit? Because, of course, ch- golf is not the game of the people in China, is it, in any sense of the word? Uh, no, not even close. I mean, I think statistically 0% of the population plays the game. Uh, now, in China... Zero percent of 1.4 billion can still be, <laughs> a, you know, a decent amount of people, um, but it's definitely um, about as far from mainstream as you can get. But uh, you know, China is one of the few places in the world where the game is on the rise. It's actually growing there, um, and I think you can view the the introduction of the game or the growth of game is kind of a barometer for for the Chinese economy itself. Usually when, when you know, economies are on the rise, um, golf rises along, along with that. Um, and then in China, you know, the growth of the game and the, the, the boom in golf courses that they've experienced over the past decade um, also allows you get, to get into a lot of other topics um, that are are big in China. Um, you've got rural land rights issues. You've got environmental concerns. You've got kind of a Wild West uh, real estate um, development. You've got the increasing gap between rich and poor. You've got a lot of corruption and, and plenty of political intrigue. So, um, you know, after writing about various aspects of the game, I started thinking that this would be a, a good backdrop to tell a, uh, a story about, about modern China. And, and Dan, can you clarify just right off the top, what is the situation with um, golf courses, um, it, it being illegal to build a golf course? Right. Can you clarify for everybody what, what exactly that all means? Sure. So since at least 2004, it's been technically illegal to build a golf course in China. Um, 2004 is when the most recent and most official, I guess, moratorium on golf golf course construction was was put into place by Beijing. Um, They have obviously not done a very good job of enforcing this ban because no country um, has built as many courses as China has over the past <laughs> decade. Not even, not even close. Um, so, uh, what Beijing did, in effect, was they they came up with this ban, and then turned their backs pretty much and let the very thing they thought they were trying to control grow even more out of control. I mean, their their points were valid when they came out with the moratorium. They were trying to stop the illegal seizure of farmland, obviously important in um, you know a country with limited arable land and 1.4 billion mouths to feed. And they also saw a real estate market that was growing out of control. Very valid concerns. Um, but you know, they, they turned their backs and they didn't enforce it. There were crackdowns here and there, but the only thing that was constant was that the number of golf courses um, kept rising. Um, so it was, you know, it was banned and, and it was booming uh, at the same time. Now, how can that be, how can that be in China? People always ask. Um, well, you know, out in the provinces, the local government officials will either choose to interpret Beijing's rules and regulations in, a, in their own way or choose to ignore them altogether. A lot of these local governments viewed um, these land-hungry developments like golf um, as a way to attract a more well-heeled clientele, attract businesses, to get um, increased tax revenue. Um, but more, most importantly, the local governments wanted developments like golf because the local governments own the land and they profit mightily from the land deals um, that, that precede the development of, of a golf course. 
And the rule number one when planning a golf course in China is to not call it a golf course. Um, There are many different uh, creative names in these planning documents. You know, it's like an ecotourism site. It's a green space. It's a sports field. You just don't say the word golf golf because golf in China is – it remains quite a politically taboo topic because of its elitist nature um, and the fact that you know it's a, it's a country with 700 million peasant farmers and it's it's something that's out of the reach for most most Chinese people. And of course, tragically, Dan, uh, if it had the opposite, if 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 the elitist sort of um, tag that's attached to golf and also in the West, if we could get around that, it could be a wonderful game for China, couldn't it? Golf that if people could play, you could make cheap, affordable golf. It's exactly what they're not doing, making a lot of the same mistakes we've made in the West, aren't they? Right. Well, I think there's a couple other unique aspects to China. I mean, in China, it is definitely an elitist game. It is, you know, prohibitively expensive. Um, so it's it is limited to the to the very wealthy. There, there are no public courses as we know them in the West. Um, so you do have to be you know, uh, a member of a, a very small slice of the population to be able to even consider um, wanting to play the game. And then in China, you also have, um, you know, you've got the population of 1.4 billion. You've got very limited uh, land. And you've also got um, some severe water shortage issues in certain parts of the country. And these are all all factors that that, you know, way against i guess that that type of uh of uh, big growth in the game and yet you tell this amazing story you well first just maybe explain to us how the book came about and how you ended up with these three intersecting stories the main one was related to your golf writing correct the story of is it zoo is that how you pronounce it or uh, joe actually Joe. Oh, I was close. C H O U. Yeah, it's uh, that's his family name, and, it, and it's Joe. So, um, yeah. So I wanted the book to be alive. I mean, even though it's a work of nonfiction, I wanted it to read more like a novel. So I wanted it to be character driven, um, and so the book follows um, the stories of of three different men. And their stories intertwine and at some points intersect. Um, and uh, the kind of at the heart of it, the, the character is Zhou Shunshu. And he is a peasant farmer turned security guard turned pro golfer um, who I got to know quite well. I, I followed him around on a, a year on the, the fledgling uh, domestic tour, the China tour. Um, and have stayed in, in close contact with him um, since. And so he, to me, is you know, the ultimate underdog and, and embodies the, the Chinese dream, or at least one definition of it. He, um, he comes from a very, very poor uh, village on the top of a mountain in, in one of the poorest provinces in central China, Guizhou province. Um, and you know he was growing up, his only dream was to to get out of the village and the uh, The book takes you on the the story of his i mean he gets out of the village and uh, in his early twenties uh, becomes a security guard at something called a golf course and that 's his first introduction to the game in uh, in Guangdong province, which is the birthplace of modern golf in uh, in China. The first golf course in China opened in one thousand nine hundred and eighty four um, in Guangdong province and so he was very near there. This was in the mid '90s and <clears throat> the book follows his um, some at some point heart, heartbreaking attempts to become um, you know, one of the better golfers on the the domestic China tour, and realize his 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 part of the Chinese dream. And you see his dreams changing as his um, as his place on the you know the social ladder changes as well. Mm. Um, and uh, the two other characters, uh, there's Wang, who is another villager, um, and his life is impacted by golf because the uh, what is planned to be the world's largest golf complex 
um, opens up next door to his tiny ancient village on the island province of Hainan, uh, some, sometimes called China's Hawaii in, in southern, southern China. And you see how um, this development uh, really changes the lives of the people in this village. And, um, and Wong, I think, shows the kind of how the adaptability necessary living in rural yeah. China in, in the face of this, the breakneck development that is happening. And I think he, he takes a unique spin on it and tries to figure out how am I going to make this new giant neighbor um, work for me? How am I going to take advantage of this and, and create a better life uh, for, my, for my family? Um, and then the final character is an American named Martin, and he works in the golf course construction industry in China, um, arrived in China largely um, by accident or against his will he, uh, in, the, in the 90s to, to build a golf course. This was when things were booming elsewhere in the world, and people thought he was crazy for, uh, for focusing on, on China. But he stuck with it, learned how things work in China or learned how things don't work in China, as the case may be, hmm. and figured out how to um, you know, build a successful business while navigating the, the unique business and political um, labyrinth that exists in, in China. So he offers this, this uh, literally ground-level view of what it's like to do business in China and be successful at it. Because, you know, now everybody in the industry is knocking on his door. Um, the same people who were laughing at him are now knocking on his door looking for work because for much of the last decade, if people weren't in that industry, if they weren't working in China, they probably weren't working at all because that's where all of the golf courses were getting built, even though they were technically illegal. Dan, while you're talking there, it strikes me, and I'm sort of thinking about this, that a lot of people in the golf industry, um, you know, and the club manufacturers, course designers, as you've touched on there, are looking to Asia, but in particular China, to be somewhat of a saviour for the game. Here's this huge market. If we can develop it, then there'll be a lot of golfers for us to sell stuff to. Um, Is there a moral issue there? It sounds from what you say that perhaps Mm. golf doesn't really belong broadly in China necessarily for a whole bunch of reasons. I don't know. I think there's there's ways to grow it in an intelligent way. Um, I think the the government has has kind of shot itself in the foot by not kind of taking the reins and and offering a legitimate path for these golf courses, showing these people these are the hoops you need to jump through to have a totally legal and legit golf course. And, and most of the guys in the industry they would have loved to have that. Um, tell me what I need to do to have an official golf course in China and I will do it. And you know, they're tired of looking over their shoulders for the, the Beijing golf police and, and wondering when they're going to crack down on, on construction. Um, but I, you know, I think they're, you know, you're, you're a few years away from people uh, thinking, thinking in, in, in this manner. Um, and, you know, I don't know. It's it's a it's a tough it's a tough situation. Uh, it's a, it's a I guess it's a tough a tough topic in in, in some ways. Um, and, and a lot of the guys working in the industry there they do talk about you know what they're uh, you know what they're doing there. But I mean they're trying to you know they have their own um, livelihoods to consider, and that's the place that has been been building the courses. And so that's that's where they where they find themselves, and if if China is seen as kind of the savior for this this industry, um, I think it shows how uh, how how many problems the industry industry has right now because there are so many obstacles to to the game in China. Um, you know there there are there are crackdowns, and um, you know it is it is a uh, it is a tough market, a tough place to do business. How ignorant are we in the West about China and how it works, uh, and perhaps what a different place it is to where we all live? I mean, I know nothing about China. Uh, right. Well, I, I mean, I wrote a I wrote a book about about it, and it's still a lot of it's still a mystery to me. 
um, you know, the a lot of people who work in the industry there, the golf course industry in China, who have worked there for decades, um, they still call call the place an enigma. Um, at least they've they've figured out how to uh, negotiate their way around that enigma. But they see a lot of people come in, you know, to the market recently um, with uh, with with very little experience and a little bit of naivete and just, you know, get eaten alive by the place. It just, um, it's, you just have to understand that it's a, it's a different beast. Things operate differently there and you have to learn how to, um, play by China's rules in some ways if you want to be successful there. The problem with this industry is there that nobody really knows what those, those rules are. Because they they tend to change on a on a pretty pretty regular basis. I mean, I was talking to somebody recently in the industry there, um, and we talk about you know the golf course boom there. Um, he said things have almost stopped completely there this year. Really? Um, huh. Yeah, he, he said that it, you know it's it's been as bad as it is ever has been, and a lot of developers are just kind of sitting on their hands, waiting for the the government to figure out what it wants before they before they make a move and so that makes you wonder if china was the place where everybody was working if things have have slowed down there so so dramatically um where are these people working now now this being china this could all change next week it could change next month you never know because as i was covering this there were there were crackdowns things would things would shut down usually more regional be a province by province um shut down um but the word i'm getting now is that it's 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 you know it's 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 uh some people i guess are moving forward with a handful of projects but it's definitely nowhere close to what it was say for four or five years ago. Um, so people are always saying, oh yeah, next year or after Chinese New Year, um, the government's going to come up with a, a clear path for us or make, make things, um, you know, make, thing, make things clearer for us and, or, or give us uh, some, some uh, path to legitimacy. Um, but I've been hearing that story, you know, every year. It's always, oh yeah, after after spring festival, things are going to change and maybe it changes a little bit or, or maybe it was after this new regime comes in, things are going to change. Um, but with Xi Jinping, the, you know, the current president, he's one of his big emphases was, has been a crackdown on government corruption and, and there's so much government corruption in China and especially as it relates to golf course construction, because how else are these golf courses getting built when they're technically illegal? So it's a tough, tough market. The other thing that strikes me, Dan, you sort of mentioned you know, there's money to be made out of developing the golf courses and, and the way you go about it and things are awkward. But how many golf courses are there in China and who's playing them? Why are they worth so much money? Is there a booming golf tourism market? We're familiar with Mission Hills, of course, and Hainan Island. I know Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw have done a course in that region of China. But uh, are they just building huge empty spaces that nobody plays? What's the situation with actual golf being played? Who plays it? So that's interesting. What's the number of golf courses in China? It seems like nobody really knows. Um, I'd say there's anywhere between 600 and 1,000 golf courses, if that's a, a big enough range for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it has grown so um, unregulated, um, even the, the government itself has no grasp of how many courses there are. It was a couple of years ago that the the land ministry said that they were looking at satellite technology, looking at satellite images to try to, you know, point out golf courses and try to, to gauge the number of courses there. Um, in 2004, state media, um, this was before the moratorium or as the moratorium was going into place, the state media reported that there were 176 golf courses in China, 11 of which at that point had the official license that said golf. So it made it a legal golf course, even though all the other golf courses are still paying taxes. So they're legal in some way. They're just not, they just don't have the license that calls them, calls it a golf course. Um, and so estimates now, um, I've heard estimates around a thousand. Um, so that's, you know, 
increasing quite dramatically uh, over over a decade. And in some cities, you know, courses are quite busy, especially on the weekends. It's tough to get a tough to get a tea time. I've been in other courses that do feel um, kind of like ghost towns. And the reality of it is, I mean, most golf courses that get built in China aren't necessarily getting built to make money from golf itself or greens fees. They're getting built to sell the real estate around it, um, the, these luxury mansions. And, and a lot of the, you know, I walk through some of the courses and it, it does feel quite empty, but I'm told that they're all purchased. Um, so maybe people see it as a good investment or a way to sink their money. They buy up a, a handful of these, these mansions uh, or, or they, they have their grandparent live there for part of the year. Um, so, you know, someone, someone told me that around 70% of the people who buy houses around golf courses in China don't even play the game. It's more of a, a status thing. Um, if you, the newly wealthy have this, this new money and, and this is a way to show that they've reached a different, a different level um, in, in their life. That sounded all um, familiar to you, Shaq? Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking, wow, that sounds just like uh, uh, golf in America now. It's amazing how many of the super rich their their dream is to be uh, buy in somewhere where there's nobody else there. It used to be you'd want to be at a place where you'd see other people, but we now have all these examples of um, of places where they're ghost towns, and they think that's that's the dream come true kind of thing. It's really strange. So it's nice to know that we were just only barely slightly ahead of the curve on this. One. <laughs> well, the number I mean, the number of golf courses golf golfers in China is is definitely on the rise, which I. I think is not the case uh, in other parts of the world. So the people are taking up the game, but I, I don't think anybody can say that you know golf fever is sweeping the nation. I mean, if you travel throughout China, you're you're probably going to find a lot of people who've never even heard of golf. Um, but the you know the the people who are golfing in China uh, represent a certain demographic, a demographic that is attractive to a lot of brands. Um, and that's why I think you know some companies salivate over the market because it it is growing. They are people with money, um, and so they have a kind of a captive audience audience there. And that's why you do see the you know the the brands still going into the you know the big the big tournaments that are happening in in China. Now, Clayton, are you with us? Uh, well, can you hear me? Yes. Sorry, mate. Yes, he's, he's joined yeah, us. Um, Dan, on that topic of tournament golf in China, um, where has the uh, golf getting into the Olympics? What has um, that done for 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 golf there and people's recognition of it? Because that's one of the main selling points we've heard about golf in the Olympics is that it would get com- countries like China investing. And we have all these people who predict that in 30 years, the top 10 in the world, will, five of them will be Chinese, which I always think seems a little bit... Um, optimistic but what where has it uh or how has it impacted the scene there i mean that's one place that i mean it's it's had a a a big impact and this is one way that the chinese government can embrace the game while at the same time kind of keeping it at arm's length which is what they have to do because it's you know it's this political taboo so um the Chinese government is is funneling an unprecedented amount of money into its elite national team. So it's I don't think the Olympics yet is having any impact at the the grassroots level. It's not like let's try to get as many Chinese people golfing as possible and odds are that you know some of them will turn out to be among the best in the world. There is more of a top-down strategy. So if you're recruited for the national team, that means you've already probably been performing well in junior tournaments, which means you probably come from a, a wealthy family um, and have been playing from a young age because uh, you know your parents can afford to send you to the tournaments and afford to get quality coaching for you. But the Chinese government is is you know for this for this national team, this elite group of 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 players, they are funding every aspect of their career, from coaching to travel to tournaments to room and board. And and I do think eventually this will be reflected 
in leaderboards um, throughout you know throughout the world. Now I don't know when that will happen, but um, I think we're already starting to see signs of it on the women's side of the game. Um, but I do think that you know announcers should start brushing up on their Chinese pronunciation because <laughs> well, there there are going to be more more Chinese names as we we all know that the China places a great uh, deal of importance on Olympic medals and so they want to they'll want to perform well um, in the Olympics um, but the way you qualify for Olympic golf is not just China rounding up. <laughs> It's top golfers and saying, "Hey, yeah. here's our Olympic team." You have to um, you have to accumulate world ranking points, and the only way they can do that is by getting more and more of these Chinese golfers onto into tournaments. Um, and so that that's where the effort is now, trying to get these world ranking points and trying to get these players ready for these these tournaments. What was the reaction in China, Dan, to Shan Shan Feng winning a major last year? The first Chinese player, man, woman, to win a major golf tournament. Uh, on a on a big on a major tour. I mean, I think um, amongst uh, a small segment of the population, it was a, a big deal. But I mean, even Fung has mentioned that you know when she goes home, um, oftentimes she doesn't get uh, recognized. It's, so she hasn't um, become that sort of celebrity. For the the masses there, for the golf fan, sure, um, she's she's very well known known there. But um, I think she even struggles to get uh, domestic sponsorships. Most of her, I don't know if any, except for maybe uh, Rainwood, the golf course, are. Um, I don't think any of her sponsors are domestic Chinese. No. I remember asking IMG. Um, uh, if she did have any Chinese sponsors, and one of the one of the examples I got was as a Chinese sponsor for her was Buick, and I thought that was a little strange. But they were saying, "Well, it's the Chinese office of Buick that's sponsoring her, so that's that's the uh, the Chinese sponsor." Um, but I, you know, I think that shows that either Chinese brands realize that the demographic, the golf demographic in China. Um, is probably more enamored with foreign brands um, than domestic brands at this point, or it's, it could have something to do with the you know the the weird image problem that golf has in China, being this elitist sport tied to corruption in the minds of many. Um, that could have something to do with it as well. What then, conversely, was the reaction to Guan Tianlang playing in the Masters last year? I was at the Asia Pacific Amateur last weekend. There were plenty of Chinese journalists covering virtually every move he made. It's not quite like the Ryo Shikawa thing where he has to have a chair because there's 50, 50 Japanese um, <laughs> reporters around him at every event. But a huge amount of interest, it seemed, um, yeah. certainly from the press, in Guan. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to say exactly since I wasn't in – I was here in New York uh, when that happened. Um, but I'd say, again, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's news – for a certain segment of the population. I mean, there's a lot of golf websites in China. There's a lot of golf journalists um, in China uh, who are who would follow something like that. I don't know that that's getting splashed on the you know the front pages of of newspapers, that type of thing. But I do think it is influencing and inspiring a lot of, um, or maybe not a lot, but it's inspiring. This new generation of of young golfers, or at least their parents, who want you know want to either be the next Guan Tianlong or Feng Shanshan, or want their children to be the next Feng Shanshan or Guan Tianlong, um, and that's actually you know a guy like Joe Shunshu, the golfer in the book, um, his window of opportunity. Um, has pretty much closed as far as com- competitive golf goes in China for a variety of reasons because this this new generation of golfer is coming along and they, they you know they have coaches um, they have uh, they have financial backing and they've they've played the game their whole life got self taught guys like Joe with no coaches. Um, it's hard for them to compete now, but how he's making his living now is you know making money from these wealthy parents who want their kids to be the next Feng Shan Shan or Guan Tianlong. Um, really interesting. Clates, when you played the tour, 
What was the state of Chinese golf? Were there any Chinese golfers playing professionally? Did you come across in your career players from China ever? Well, only from Taiwan. I mean, they were tremendous players. Shane Minnan and Mr. Lu, Master Lu, and the two Chen brothers, they were, they were terrific players. So they show what players can, from that part of the world can do. They were, I thought, brilliant players. Mm. So, you know, you, you, you know, d- depending on the politics, I mean, obviously you can't you don't call them Chinese players, but they were, you know. China does. To, to, to all intents and purposes, <laughs> they were Chinese, and they were, they were terrific players. Mm. So... I mean, Shane Min Nam is a beautiful player. And surprisingly, Min Nam and Mr. Lou won the World Cup at Royal Melbourne in 1972 when the greens were concrete and hard and fast and everyone was staggered that they could win on greens like that when the greens they came from in Taiwan were slow and grainy and soft and completely the opposite, really. Hmm. Yeah, well, exactly. That. And their, their players did pretty well last week at Royal Melbourne too, I must say. Cheng Jin was pretty impressive. And I'm, Guan Tian Lang, I was extremely impressed. We'll talk about that in our newsy episodes. <laughs> Probably doesn't fit with... What I, I heard a story about him last week in Perth saying that someone told me he was asking for appearance money as an amateur in professional tournaments, which was um, pretty staggering. I'm not sure he would be. I met his no, well, lady who claimed to be his manager, who was a, an either way. Nice. <laughs> Either way, the concept of an amateur, fifteen-year-old amateur getting appearance money, has got horrifying. Um, oh. Will he still be an amateur then if he's getting appearance well, money? Of course not. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure they're not too worried about the rules of amateur status. Right. That's got horrifying ramifications for the world if fifteen-year-old amateurs are asking for appearance money in professional events. So you know the the first the first. Chinese pro who played in the Masters, and the first guy who made any real dent in the international game was uh, Zhang Lianwei. I don't know if you played with him, but he he played in the 2004 Masters. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, I mean, he's a, definitely a trailblazer. What he did was pretty remarkable because you know the first golf course in China didn't open until 1984, and so you know just 20 years later, um, you have a a Chinese golfer um, playing on one of the biggest stages um, there was. And he was another guy like Joe who was self-taught. He was a former javelin thrower and he was working at kind of the local um, rec center after his javelin uh, career ended. And uh, the second golf course in China opened and he decided to become a caddy there. And uh, he you know, he worked his way up to be, you know, playing playing with the best. I and mean, he won a European tour event as well. Um, and so that was in, in 2004. Um, so, I mean, the, the game in China is so young. I think we don't really um, take a step back to realize that. I mean, the game in China is younger than Adam Scott. Mm. Wow. So it's well, you put still, it like that. <laughs> we're still very early, still very early in the – on the timeline for, for China golf. So um, there's bound level, to be growing pains. Yeah, at that level, Dan, the success is accelerating though, isn't it? With We see on one Asia tour and play the, the, the young chap who won the Nanshan Masters a couple of weeks ago, Li, Li, ha, ha, Li Hao Tong. Seriously good player. Very, very impressive. That, that yep. success is accelerating, isn't it? We're seeing more and more. The Chinese team that was at the Asia Pacific Open last week, there were some really impressive players in 15, 16, 17 years old right at the start of their career so that excess success we can expect that to accelerate can't we definitely i mean the amount of money that china is pouring into it um i think it, it yeah it's definitely going to 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 pay dividends and we're going to see more and more this is the first generation of chinese golfers who could you know play golf their entire life mm. Um, and so we're just starting to see that that come to bear. So like this is the first generation that had a golf ball in their hand from a very young age. A lot of them probably come from well-to-do families, so they could afford to have coaching. They could afford to be sent to um, to tournaments. That was something unfathomable for just the generation that preceded them. Um, and so and now with the government funding because of the Olympics. Um, you know, that's really going to accelerate things. Now, I don't, I'm not um, crazy enough to think it's going to, like the next Olympics or even the Olympics after that, we're going to see, um, see, you know, China making a real big dent. But I do think it's something that we shouldn't be surprised if it happens in, you know, 
in 10 or 20 years. You underestimate the power of the shark, Dan, who was uh, on <laughs> the Chinese Olympic team. Uh, right. I've still, have you, I don't know exactly what his role is. I don't know how hands-on he is with his, with his role with the Olympic team. Um, I don't either, but I'll, I'll make no further comment about that because <laughs> – I. I blocked that out of my mind. Exactly. He's doing that. Oh my lord! He'll probably oh. talk about it on the U.S. Open coverage next year, Shaq. So don't panic. Uh-huh. You'll get. To, oh yeah, you'll get to uh-huh. hear hear, uh, hear all about it. On the whole, Dan, did you? Well, first, what's your relationship with the game now? You you opened by saying you weren't a golf writer or even a golfer. Um, right. What's your relationship with the game itself? And then, what's your take broadly on um, the rights and wrongs of golf, sort of in China? It sounds like quite a mixed bag. Well, my relationship um, is—I uh, would say—it's a troubled relationship. I'm not—I'm not a good golfer at all. I took some lessons um, in China, that's, and that's where I—you know—I started taking lessons. But I never got to the point where I thought I uh, should be leaving the uh, the driving range. I thought it would be an insult to the game if I actually went onto a course. And, you know, the irony of it all is I really couldn't afford to play golf in China. That's how expensive it was. I was a, you know, a freelance writer funding this book project pretty much on my own. Um, you know, paying for greens fees in China was was not something that I could do. That was a quite a luxury for me. Um, and now, you know, I find myself in uh, Brooklyn with um, similar obstacles uh, to getting into the game. Uh, in China, you know, it was all the driving ranges and the courses were pretty much a hike. You had really had to travel. It ate up a good chunk of your day. Um, and now I live in Brooklyn and I find myself in the same situation. I don't own a car. I don't. I don't know how I would get to the nearest driving range, which I don't. I think it's like more than an hour away. So it's it's not uh, that easy. So I'm I'm a definitely an an armchair golfer. I watch I watch on TV, and that's that's about it. But not, not ho- the, hopefully someday that'll change. Not for the first time, Shaq. I find myself wanting to ask you: Does this sound familiar? <laughs> <laughs> What Dan's outlining there, I mean, all of these problems, he's just told us exactly, hasn't he, that all the, the problems that confront golf in the West seem to have been imported to China. Yeah, and then, I mean, the time element, though, is uh, is just, you you hear it so much here. I don't know what you hear there, but I just keep hearing that more more than ever, more than cost, more than access. It's just uh, people just saying, you know, how, how can I give this the the time it deserves and needs and um, um, and, and then that's not a positive trend mm. now, I think in I think in China there's definitely a, I left a you all speechless <laughs> you were breaking up a bit Shaq so we had to there's, take a while to take it all in Stay, Dan. there's definitely a segment oh, of the population sorry. in China that has the means and the time um, to really become um, fanatical about the game. And if, if the game is going to open up to um, a wider audience, I think driving ranges is where it's going to happen. Um, you do see driving ranges becoming more and more crowded um, in China. So I don't know that the problems are exactly the same. I think my situation in China might have been um, a little different. You know, I didn't have a car in China either, but a lot of the people who have the means to golf in China have their own car. So it's much more convenient for them to drive to a course or drive to a driving range or I should say have their drivers drive them to a driving range or to a course. Um, so I, I still think that um, it's the, in the early days there, and I do think there is room room for growth in China. I mean, I guess it um, it would accelerate things if it became a little bit more affordable, but I really don't know how that's going to happen in China be- just because of the land issues there. Land is such a valuable commodity, um, and the local governments make so much money from the land deals. They're not about to, you know, to donate a plot of land just so people can have um, you know, a cheap round of a game that they're technically not supposed yeah. to be embracing anyway. So there are there are different obstacles there. So I think the growth is going to happen, but it's definitely going to be in the the very uh, wealthy side of the hmm. the market. Shaq, was it not during the depression that the U.S. government was it was it FDR? A lot of the public golf courses yeah, were built we had the, during the depression. 
Correct. The Works Progress Administration mm. built things like Bethpage and Breckenridge Park and all sorts of interesting facilities. Also rebuilt clubhouses. Sharp Park at uh, the McKenzie Course. It's been a big controversial uh, facility the last uh, six or seven years was a WPA uh, project in part. So uh, we we did have that uh, back then as a way to... to uh, provide public golf what might golf look like in america had that not happened it sounds you're almost facing I, uh, the same situation somebody actually wrote us uh, jeff silverman wrote a story about that and um and it's it's almost unfathomable really in terms of public golf what we would have done had we not had that hmm. you know i would think that a lot of the golfers uh, recreational golfers in china might like the fact that it is exclusive they like to feel mm. that they're doing something that not everybody else can do. So I wonder if it ever would become a bit more mainstream, which I don't know that that's going to happen. I wonder how that would affect that that core market who is doing it because it is this aspirational thing that few can do. Clay, talk about golf in but Scotland do you think- and the difference there. Sorry, Jack. Well, just quickly, I just wondered, do you think a great athlete, a great player uh, emerges and, and, and that maybe uh, sparks um, more interest or, or is it different in the way that television and everything works there? It could. I, I'd be interested to see. I mean, I, I don't think we've seen it happen with Feng Shan Shan. So you, you wonder if, that's, if that has to do with the fact that that's a female golfer and not a male golfer. If a male gol- Chinese golfer were to win a major what effect would that have? Um, or if, a, if any Chinese golfer were to win an Olympic medal in golf, would that change the perception of the game? It may, it may wake more people up to the game, but I don't know if it can change um, the hard realities that exist in China that the game is still, you know, it still is elitist. It still is prohibitively expensive for, for the average person. You wonder from the outside, Dan, whether the Olympic gold medal might have more impact than perhaps a golfer winning the Masters within China because it could, you it know could. which is more revered amongst China. So when that, when that happens, uh, you know, 15 years from now, we'll, have a, mm. we'll do the second version of the podcast. Yeah, exactly. We'll probably have even better technology. We'll be able to get Clates on from the start. Yeah. Clates, I was listening to Dan talk, Dan, a lot of the, sort of the, the things he, he outlined sort of culturally about the problems in China and the mm. same sort of problems he has in America. In Scotland, the game is the opposite, isn't it? We've adopted some of those issues that Dan talked about here in Australia too, the exclusivity part of it and the people who play the game because they like to feel like they're doing something others can't. It's, it's the opposite of the kind of the roots of the game, isn't it? In Scotland, when we spoke to Jeff Ogilvy about the difference of just playing in Scotland. Clates? No, Clates. You know, you just broke up there a little right, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember Jeff saying that You there? I'm there. Yeah, yeah. We keep we keep losing you now as well. So we've got a a Skype issue in 15. This years, is perfect for the China. This is perfect for the China edition, guys. This is the, <laughs> this is exactly what I went through using Skype for, uh, for just, several years yeah. in China. It's yeah. disappointing. Quite so you. No, it's atmospheric. I'm here. Is this any better? Yeah, that's better. See if you can get out a whole sentence. That'd be good. I remember Jeff saying you would go down to the pub at North Berwick and everyone in the pub would know that it was downwind off the right on the 14th hole. So, so the, the, the game's ingratiated into the town. I mean, Australia and New Zealand are a lot like that. I mean, everyone can play golf in Australia. You can go and play public golf for not very much money. Everyone plays. You, it's the same in Scotland. It's the same in England, really. But you, you, you grow across the continent and only in Scandinavia is it really a middle-class game. All the... All the the French, the Dutch, the Belgians, the Germans, the Spanish, it's, a, it's the same thing as China, probably to a lesser extent, but it's still a really upper-class game that the, certainly the working classes don't play it because they can't afford to. And it's a game that people try and keep to themselves. They try and sort of lock it in amongst themselves. They don't want to spread the game at all, really, it seems to me. No, nothing worse than a crowded course, Clates. Oh, yeah, exactly. And the, and the, and the poi polloi playing it, they would be having that. Yeah. You know, I, ironically, in China, the, the working class folks who are playing the game are the pros, guys, yeah. like, guys like Joe. Um, so if there are blue-collar golfers, a lot of them were on the, on the China tour not too long ago. And the great players, uh, you know, fr- from Spain, Sevi and Garrido and Canazares and Pinero, they're, they're all caddies. 
and, and, I, and I suspect the same in Taiwan. That Shane Minnow and those guys, I think, all came out of the – there was really one sort of family of players who came out of Tamsui Golf Club, I think it was, in, in Taiwan. But um, it was the caddies who were the great players in Spain. Is there a caddy culture in um, China down or is it mostly golf carts it, as we seem to have transferred to in the West? Well, it's quite it's quite different. There is a caddy culture, but it's um, – yeah, Almost gonna... all of the caddies that you're going to encounter there will be young women, um, women in their late teens or early 20s who may or may not play the game and are mostly doing this because caddying offers them a, you know, a better living than working in the fields or working in a, in a factory. So there's, there are golf courts and most most courses, it's I think it's mandatory. Very rare do you see people walking, and um, and there are more caddies than um, you could probably use. <laughs> uh, and it's yeah, it's a I think a Zhang Lan Wei, the guy who I brought up before, who was the the caddy turned uh, turned golfer. He's kind of a unique story in China. You don't hear too many of the the pros having been um, caddies in the past. And, of course, I think in some parts of Asia you have that whole caddy on the cart thing, don't you? So you, you tick off both of those boxes, which has just always seemed a bit bizarre to me. Yeah. Well, that's what it is in China. The caddies <laughs> yeah. are riding the cart. Yeah. On the back of the cart. I'll get, I've tried to ask this question in a couple of, a couple of times, um, I think, Dan, but I just wonder broadly, is golf right? Is golf is it a good thing, golf, in China? Is it a positive for China and the people and the place, do you think? You know, I... I uh I don't. I mean, I can't. Don't know if we can say whether it's good or or bad. I would say that um, the growth of golf in China is is inevitable to a degree. So, I would think that it would be in China's best interest to figure out a way to to see that that growth be intelligent and sustainable. Um, and I would also point out that, you know, we talk about rural land rights issues. We talk about all sorts of, of things, environmental concerns, um, you know, water usage. Um, golf development in China makes up a tiny sliver of overall development that is happening in rural China. Um, golf will get the headlines because it's golf and because it's this elitist foreign import. But... Um, you know, there are factories getting built. There are, um, you know, real estate developments getting built. Um, there's, there is agriculture, which is actually a, you know, a heavy polluter in, in China as well, um, that have all of these same problems that the, you know, the golf course development has. Um, it's just that, you know, golf um, and I guess what it represents or the image that it has it gets um, most of the headlines, but it's it's just a tiny sliver of overall development, which is happening happening throughout rural China. So, if um, we talked about the villager Wang, who um, whose village was next to um, what is now Mission Hills High Co, um, you know, if it wasn't Mission Hills High Co, it probably would have been something else um, that moved in next door. Um, and that would have brought along with it a lot of the same um, controversies that the golf course did. Um, so it's, I still think that it's still so small that I don't think it's having a widespread uh, impact. So if you, were, if you were looking to solve some of the problems you're talking about, you wouldn't look to golf to be the first place to start attacking those issues necessarily. Only you if you're looking to, to make headlines. I, I think, you know, just... The way China is developing overall in rural areas and what that means for the inhabitants of those areas and what it means for the resources, that's just a bigger topic and golf is just a, a, a tiny part of that. And I know I've been to courses in China that are actually improving um, improving the atmosphere, improving the environment, you know, getting rid of these um, illegal fish farms that are heavy polluters or um, – you know, they are forcing out villages, but the villages were were sending raw sewage directly into the ocean, or you know things like that. Um, the golf course comes in, and um, obviously they're changing a way of life, 
which is something else we would need to take a look at. But I've been to golf courses where you could say that they are leaving the land in a better state than it was before they arrived. Now, that very well could be an outlier um, uh, because in my experience, it seemed like a lot of these um, developers or the people building the cor- courses were left to police themselves. Um, the regulations exist, um, but whether they're going to be enforced is, a, is another matter. So you have to believe that some people are doing things the right way and then other developers um, may not have that at the, the forefront of their mind. Dan, how can – it's a silly uh, – oh, sorry, Shaq, go. Well, I just want to ask, Dan, you're, um, when, you're heading back uh, later this week, correct, for the first time in, in, in a while? Yeah, um, so it's almost exactly three years since I've um, since I've been in China, and so I coincidentally am going back um, for the week of the um, the HSBC Champions event, which in two thousand five right. was one of the the first big events that I covered. I covered Tiger Woods' first official event in China, um, and that was uh, two thousand five in in Shanghai, and so I'll. I'll be going back there again. Um, end of this. What week. are you? Uh, what are you looking for? Uh, are you going to go seek out anything in particular? Without obviously uh, giving away your location in case the uh, Chinese <laughs> government's listening to this. Uh, well, I hate to disappoint, but I'm I'm actually going to see my wife, ah. who is she's she's based there for a couple months for her for her job. So I'm taking a vacation, and and going out there, and it's a happy coincidence that it happens to be during the week of the two biggest golf events in China. I arrive the weekend of the BMW Masters, and. Then uh, the following weekend is the HSBC Champions, both of which happen to be in Shanghai, which is where I'll be. Um, I have worked in a few um, few book events. Um, um, it'll be great to catch up with some people, and I'm sure at these events I'll, I'll you know, I'll get a better sense um, for uh, for the lay of the land there. It's you know, I've I've kind of stopped trying to report. On, on golf in China basically because I'm not based in China. It's almost impossible to report on China if you're not you know, on the ground there. And so Brooklyn didn't seem like the right place to be uh, you know, yeah. trying to come up with stories about what's going on in China because it does change so, so quickly mm-hmm. there. Um, and it really helps to have your ear to the ground in the, in the country that you're covering. So um, I'm not going to be doing any sort of top secret reporting, so it's fine if the government's listening in right now. But the the no, book no is plan. for sale there. Uh, Are you bringing books or? Um, <laughs> I, the book the is book available. Events, you said. The book is available in certain bookstores there. I don't know if it's officially available. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll leave it at that. You know. Yeah. Moving right along, Rod, you yeah. had something else. I was. I was just. I hope you weren't hoping to catch Rory McIlroy at either of those events. No, that's not looking good. Is he's it? not no. going to be there preparing for his court case. What influence, if any, Dan, might the forces for good in the West in golf be able to exert on China as the game continues to grow there? So that rather than some of the poor practices that we've we have here that seem to be reincarnating themselves in China. How, how do we take the good things about golf to export to China? Is the, does the West have an influence on the way Chinese people think about golf, those who play the game? Um, I mean, I think the people who are working in the industry now in China are, are you know, trying to evangelize in, in that manner. But, you know, I, I do, you know, talk to enough people in the industry who will tell you that, um, you know, you're not really going to uh, be able to tell China the right way to do things or tell China how it should be should be doing things. I think China's going to have to learn from its um, mistakes. I, I think some people can come in and and um, and give recommendations and give you know lessons learned from the West. Um, and I don't think this is just a golf thing either. I, I think that China is at, at a stage of its growth where it feels perhaps in a way 
a right to make the same mistakes um, that, that that other countries have made in the past. I mean, you hear this argument a lot with um, with uh, you know the environment or pollution. Um, China is getting penalized now because they happen to be going through their in, we'll call it the in, their industrial revolution at a time when people are definitely more attuned to um, to the ills of industry and, and and pollution. Whereas, you know, in in America, we got rid of that, you know, a hundred or or more years ago when people weren't really concerned about AQI levels um, in, in the air. So I think in, in some ways China is, uh, determined to, um, forge its own path and learn from its, from its own mistakes. Um, I, I, you know, some people in the industry just say that there aren't people in, in there, you know, in China right now, uh, or golf doesn't have the advocates in China as it does in, um, in other parts of the world. And so it, it may just be a, a matter of time because I don't know if somebody can just kind of parachute in and, and say, hey, this is how you should be doing things. Listen to, listen to us. I don't know if that would go over too well. And really, we're not, frankly, in the West in a position to preach too much, are we, about much of this stuff? <laughs> we haven't solved any of, all of those problems by any stretch of the imagination. Shaq, what's your take there? The Core and Crenshaw course on Hainan Island, those sorts of things, I guess, is maybe what I'm thinking about. That's the kind of thing you'd like to see perhaps uh, more of when you're in a growing market like China, where some of those, not just the ideals of the strategies and whatnot of the game, but some of those environmental things and the way the game can sit more gently in the landscape, perhaps. Yeah. Being promoted. Yeah, no, everything we've exported there, uh, it's not just the uh, celebrity name architect thing that is painful to see. It's that the the aesthetics of what we're, we've uh, exported is just the most garish, uh, theme courses, uh, various things like that, and obviously you need you need variety, but uh, there isn't a whole lot of minimalism um, that's been uh, attempted to be built, and and uh, that that core Crenshaw course looks spectacular in the photos, and it looks like all their other golf courses. It looks like, as you said, it just they laid it onto the landscape, and uh, they have a, a very good superintendent who understands the look and. Uh, it just uh, it looks stunning. Well, you, we still have problems convincing people who are go- well, committed yeah, golfers exactly. in the West, don't we? That that's right. the way golf so, should look. So we can't expect that. Yeah, there are definitely you know people doing it the right way in China. I mean, it, um, you know, since almost everybody in the, in the industry was working in China or trying to work in China in one way or another, that means you have a lot of the top talent um, there. So there are definitely are people trying to do things the right way. I think whether the developer agrees or has the same um, intentions, that's where it, yeah. you know, it depends on how much, uh, how hands off the developer is willing to be and kind of let the, the, uh, the professionals do their thing. I'll say it again, Shaq. Jesus, all sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's very uh, familiar. Clates, just to finish up, Clates, have you played in China at all? I imagine Jeff must have at some point in some of the WGCs there. And what's what's been the takeaway from the game there? I know Jeff's played in Shanghai a couple of times, and I know he loved the city, not the golf so much. But I played one game in Hainan. We went there to look at a project and they took us to a – no, no, it was, sorry, it was in Beijing. Remember, remember Jeff when – Gil and I and Tom Weisskopf and Ernie Elsa's. Oh, yeah, we, when you we, bit on the TPC bombed out, bombed out village, yeah. TPC of Beijing, and they took us to a oh, golf course there yeah, that was, um, well, it was a golf course at 18 holes. <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> Beautifully put. The, the site of the TPC in Beijing was the worst piece of land I've ever seen for a golf course. Tom Weisskopf, well, you know, he was my, one of my heroes. You know, he, looked at, he, he kind of turned around and looked at me and said, my God, what is this? It was the most staggeringly inappropriate yeah. site for a golf course, but uh, you could have done something with it because it was all it was going to take was money. But it was crazy that you know to think you could put a great golf course on it. But you, you know you could have made it decent; would have been green and had trees on it. But yeah, that was going to be a Gill Adam Scott collaboration. Yeah, uh, in fact, it would have been officially it, it, dead. 
It would have been interesting to see what Gil could have done with it because it was brutally difficult. So it was a terrible sight for golf. Yeah. Gil might be a bit tired now having done the Olympic course. He might need to have a year or two off, I suspect. Yeah, I think he's getting a little tired of those overseas flights. Yeah, the, the policy there, yeah, absolutely. Dan, it's been uh, fabulous to have you along. I'd love to hear, we might have you back one day. I definitely must read the book. And after I've read the book, perhaps we might get you back and sort of tease out some of those issues. But it's been terrific to hear uh, about golf in China because, of course, um, realistically, like in everything, it's a, it is a bit of a metaphor, as you say, isn't it? Everything relies on China in the world. Golf manufacturing uh it's become such a huge part of the the global economy hasn't it in every way so yeah i mean I th- thanks so much for having me i mean i i, I think that um you know if you're a, a fan of golf um you'd want to pick up the book but if you're just looking also for uh if you're interested in you know in china or the china story um it's also uh i mean i think that's what it is i mean i talked about um uh, my uh, my armchair uh, golfing. I think people will um, take comfort in the fact that this is not a how-to book. Um, it's, I'm not really, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a golfer. I'm I'm more of an observer here, and um, and golf turned out to be a a great lens through which to explore um, China, modern China, and all of its. Uh, contradictions and and growing pains yeah and i suspect being a non-golfer probably makes it all the more interesting uh to read for golfers and non-golfers alike in that way but it's been terrific we really appreciate you taking some time great to talk to you thanks a lot really enjoyed it yeah thanks dan thanks dan and as uh, as always to you, Shaq, been great to hear you. We must, we must get together in the next day or two and do an episode covering all those newsy events, Ted Bishop and the Ryder Cup and all that sort of stuff and uh, the Asia-Pacific Amateur, but it's been great to have your time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Rod. Yes, and uh, Clates, to you as well. The natives are restless, mate. We need to hear your views on the Ryder Cup, the Ted Bishop debacle, Lake Karanyup, which of course you've just come back which from. Which was good. So, I watched right. that Thor Von Olsen. He was fantastic. Isn't he a great Wow, guy? he's really good. Changed his name to Thunder. Thorbjorn yeah. means Thunder. And he okay. changed it to Thunder because he thought that'd be fun. <laughs> well, he played with Ogilvy the first two days. So I saw him play three rounds last week. He was brilliant. Wow, what a player. Sadly, we only yeah. saw Jeff play two. But we'll come to that when we do our news episode shortly. For the moment, we'll wrap it up. Good to have you aboard, Clates. Thanks, mate. And that wraps it up for episode, what did we say, 47 of, uh, of State yeah. of the Game. It's episode 48 coming shortly. Hope you've enjoyed it. Look forward to your company again very soon on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.